So I guess how's how's stuff going in Pittsburgh? You're settling in? Yeah. Met, met anybody yet? Uh, well, we did orientation. Uh, I really spooked myself the other day. Um, did you meet like a steel mill worker's ghost? Not sure really how to describe this. It just really weirded me out. I know why it happened, or at least I have a really good theory as to why it happened, but hmm. it's something I wanted to, to share with the listeners. It's going to tie into what we're talking about today. So I've met one of the members of my cohort only online prior to going to orientation. I'd only seen her Facebook profile picture a few times. And I have a problem with recognizing people. I have a condition called prosopagnosia that actually has historically been quite disabling to me, though I've gotten really good at compensating for it. This is tied into like, I've talked about having autism before on the cast and like comorbids and stuff like that. <laughs> One of the ways in which my brain sucks is that I just can't consistently recognize faces. I wouldn't be able to recognize my parents if they were wearing anything unusual or my friends. And so I was a really, really shy kid. I have no hope of going and recognizing, say, one of my cohort members that I've met on Facebook. I'm not going to be able to pick out her face at all. And I walked into this big hall for this orientation session. There's like four or five hundred people in there. There's a couple of rows with empty seats. And I see a seat and I really want the seat. And I'm walking up towards it and I'm thinking, hey, that looks like it's just far enough from the front, but it's not too far back that I can't hear. And I sit down and the woman immediately to the left of me turns to me and says, oh, you're Jack. Hi, I'm cohort member name. I'm so glad I got to meet you before school started. I don't think this was a coincidence. In prosopagnosia, I don't have any ability to consciously recognize people. But my brain totally recognized my cohort member and said, hey, you should go sit there. That's the one chair that's next to the one person out of four or five hundred here who you know at all. And maybe that doesn't sound disturbing to you guys, but to me, this was like undergoing a psychic experience or something. Welcome to Paragoricon. I'm JJ Roy. And I'm Jack Parker. We're going to be covering Blind Sight and the Undermind. Blind Sight, Covert Recognition, Automatic Writing. What do all these things have in common? It's that your mind might know more than you think it does. It's a thing that doesn't just apply to weirdos like me. It applies to everyone. Yeah, so we've got some really interesting examples covering ways in which the brain functions outside of consciousness, but that would otherwise appear as phenomenon that we normally associate with consciousness, and what that says about anything. <laughs> like, yeah. It ties into lots of things, and by the end we're going to philosophize a bunch. Um, we're also going to talk about music, and how the brain recognizes patterns, not just in like visual stimuli, but also in auditory stimuli and stuff like that. So, what is blind sight, Jack? I'm going to give you two definitions. There are two kinds of blind sight, but they're very closely related to each other. You'll see why immediately. So, in type 1 blind sight, that would be the ability to guess about details of some visual stimulus in front of you and be successful about that, despite the fact that you have no conscious experience of that visual stimulus. You are cortically blind. Your brain is not processing that information in the way that allows you to have a conscious experience. If they're cortically blind, patients won't want to respond because it sounds like a ridiculous thing because they're like, why are you asking me? I'm fucking blind. I can't see. <laughs> but if you force them to guess, they're going to do really well on it. So that's type one blindsight. Weird. It sounds like they're psychics. Just to clarify for one moment, cortically blind means that their eyes still function correctly, but there's something wrong in their brain that allows them to not process visual information as opposed to somebody who like doesn't have eyes. Yeah, right? it's going to be just like any kind of blindness experientially in that there's nothing they're seeing. But the reason for that is something going on neurologically. It doesn't have to do, yeah, with the structure of their eye. Type 2 blindsight is when cortically blind patients do have a feeling there was a visual change in their blind field, but again, don't have a conscious perception of it. Flash something in front of them. They don't experience that, but they have a feeling that something happened. Hmm. And so these are closely related in that they involve the ability to process information on some level to report or indirectly gain access to information about something that you don't have any direct conscious awareness of that's visual. Here's the features that a person with blind sight can detect. Mm -hmm. Motion, orientation, shape, certain kinds of colors, even indications that they can process that certain facial emotions have been displayed to them. And we actually discovered this most directly through this blind macaque named Helen. Wait, wait, um, time out. Do you think they named her after Helen Keller? Oh my god, I bet they did. I bet they did. <laughs> what dicks? Holy shit. 
That's amazing. I'm sorry. Carry on. I never would have put I was that just together. Staring at that, like I think they named her after Helen Keller. Do you think they they took out her cochleas afterwards? Ooh. Do you think that they like signed water on her little macaque wrist? <laughs> For some reason, she still hasn't captured language all these years. Um, <laughs> well, she's become a strident socialist and women's suffragette. Damn plagiarist macaques. <laughs> We'll get into cryptomnesia later. Yeah, it's fine. So Helen was cortically blind. We can't ask macaques directly, but we had been figuring out which parts of the brain were correlated with vision and vision processing. And uh, we knew that a lot of it seemed to be localized in a system called V1. This was like the primary visual cortex. The researchers had removed Helen's V1, and this did result in, as predicted, her seeming blind in most tests. But she was still showing reactions to light and to blink stimuli, and she, more confusingly, seemed to be able to detect motion and location and shape, among other details. So she could even navigate her environment pretty well compared to other macaques. Another thing that was being observed was in human patients who had undergone accidents and had strokes, human subjects who had damaged their visual cortices would experience and report some degree of blindness. It could be total blindness. But then those same patients were often able to guess with above chance, sometimes very good performance, the details of objects that were presented to them and have motor responses like catching balls thrown at them. Mm -hmm. This again came with this experience of having blindness in the relevant field. So if they had total blindness, they just couldn't see anything. They had damage to V1. So this corresponded to what would be predicted based on how we understood the relationship between neuroanatomy and how vision worked. But still, you had these weird abilities to perform in these ways. So they've done a lot of tests on this, and they found that this capability could be demonstrated pretty consistently. Um, and there are some really striking cases of blindsight. One famous case is a person named TN. He lost the use of V1 in both hemispheres after he had some strokes in the early 2000s. Standard tests for blindness indicated he couldn't see anything, just like the case with Helen. And he reported consciously seeing nothing, so he didn't have any visual experiences. But researchers started noticing possible signs of blindsight, that he was performing in ways that indicated that maybe some information processing was going on. And so they started testing that in 2008. And I love this story. They asked him to walk through a hallway without his standard cane that he used to navigate. Mm -hmm. And without telling him, they put obstacles in the hallway for him to have to navigate around. <laughs> sure. Yeah. You're good. You're good. Keep going. Keep going, Tien. You, you're golden. But unlike what you're probably imagining, um, Tien did navigate around them. He did so beautifully. In fact, he squished himself up against the side of the wall of the hallway at one point. So he could get around a trash can and get to the researchers? <laughs> That's just like, don't mind me. Moseying along. Squeak, 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 squeak. And in fact, that's pretty much exactly what was conveyed because they asked him, you know, like how he navigated that. And he said he wasn't trying to avoid anything. He was just walking the way he wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> so just like, you know, it just seemed like a really good idea to like squish up against the wall and kind of like shimmy yeah. past this totally not a trash can that he didn't see. Yeah, and and open air, but I feel the need to shimmy. Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> you just got to do it. So you can read a write up of that. That's from DeGelder 2008. We will link to the citation for that paper. Uh, I just, like, like, what other, like, rationalizations did, like, I wonder if they tested it with other things, like, dangled stuff right in front of his face and just geez. swiped at it. Like, oh, yeah, I just feel very swipey today. Or, like, do you think they tested that on the macaque, just, like, watching the macaque just trip over obstacles <laughs> onto his little monkey face and have to get up and be so confused? <laughs> Oh, or did like the macaque like squoosh against the wall and be like, "This is just how how I feel like macaque today." I feel like I'm sorry. I'm just thinking of like the Harlow's rhesus monkeys. I'm just I'm like just it's just Harlow running all the experiments. Let's let's just trip blind baby monkeys while we're at it. Yeah, just monkey bullying 101. Welcome to college, you hippies. So, Anyways. but this thing with Tien, where he claims he was just walking the way he wanted to, he wasn't trying to avoid anything, that's consistent with the behavior that we see in blind patients, broadly speaking, in that 
even when successful, they really generally don't ever feel confident in their ability to perform in these ways. They don't spontaneously try to guess, for example, after being notified of their performance, what objects are around them or in front of them. Mm. They never have that confident feeling. So they will chalk it up typically to being lucky. There's something very compelling about the sense that you are not receiving anything. If you're never experiencing the shape how does it make sense for people to force you to report details about it, right? Why would mm-hmm. you spontaneously try to to do that? And now I want, I want to be really clear that we do know that there's this extremely robust support for visual processing being in V1. So let me explain why this happens, the, the theories that we have here. So as far as we understand, we have two different visual systems that evolved at different points in our uh, evolutionary history, called them System A and System B. System A came early. So for example, fish and amphibians, they have a system pretty close to system A and us. It's focused on orienting our attention to sudden movements out of the corner of our eyes. It's focused on controlling our basic eye movements. It's just like, what do we look at when certain stimuli occur? Then there's system B, which is present in, quote, higher animals, for example, mammals. System B is a more complex system. It appears to be responsible for conscious perception of the world. And take that in the most loose hedged sense possible. I'm not trying to say that, like, you know, they've solved how you generate conscious experience out of neuromatter or something. It just seems to be that if you knock out system B, you don't have any conscious visual perceptions anymore. So system B is damaged in blindsight, but system A is still around. Patients can use it to guide their movements, to pick up on features of objects, features of the world around them, but they can't really pick up on anything holistic, it seems, possibly with the exception of, like, um, maybe like facial emotion processing. Uh, it's not clear how well that is going to be supported, um, that research, but there's inklings there. Um, they don't have any conscious perception in that blind field, basically, because they don't have that conscious associated system B. So um, there's a couple of ways this can happen. So there's a structure called the lateral geniculate nucleus. The information we need to figure out how far away an object is, for example, and whether it's moving is determined there before it goes to V1. So when you get damaged to V1, you don't get that nice conscious shit, but you do at least have that information processed. Another theory is that you have different branches of the optic nerves sending information not just to V1, but to like the superior colliculus and other parts of the cerebral cortex with fancy names that I won't go into. Mm-hmm. The point is. What's happening is different shit is going to different places. It's not hitting V1 or it's going to V1, but V1 isn't working. Yeah. Or like there's a portion of your brain that is a T-Rex brain that can sense motion. Yeah. (laughs) But (laughs) doesn't know what it's looking at. There's another kind of related phenomena to blindsight, which is more specific to facial recognition. Uh, Specifically, we're talking about covert facial recognition. And this is kind of what Jack was talking about when she told her introductory story about recognizing her cohort member without realizing that's what she was doing. Covert facial recognition is the ability for people with prosopagnosia, that is face blindness again, to recognize faces without realizing it consciously. So, for example, if you run into somebody that seems very, very familiar, but you don't consciously understand why they are familiar, it is because a portion of your brain is covertly recognizing their face There's actually a couple of different kinds of prosopagnosia. One of them is congenital, uh, which is the inability to recognize faces from birth. Um, And then there's also acquired prosopagnosia, where you can get that through any number of reasons, because there's damage to the right occipital temporal region of the brain. Brain damage can knock out your ability to recognize faces. There's been a couple of different experiments uh, trying to tease out exactly what the difference is between overt and covert facial recognition. Overt being when you are conscious of it, and covert, of course, when you're not. One of the first studies done on this sort of bifurcation of pathways was done by Bauer in 1984, and most other things have sort of built on top of that. They found all sorts of interesting things that indicate covert facial recognition outside of the person's ability to perform. For example, they also found correlations between higher overt recognition and prosopagnosious students if the faces were linked with other contextual evidence and things like that. For example, if somebody came with, like, a string of numbers or something like that. And the kind of things that people could, like, answer about. So if you were to ask people with prosopagnosia details about a familiar face, they might not recognize the face at all, but... 
they might be able to tell you the profession associated with it or yeah. sometimes even a name which is really weird because you can make it kind of like you can do a little backwards inference like i think mm-hmm. i probably do this yeah, exactly. And so it seems like there's a framework for covert facial recognition that doesn't just have to do with the sort of web of visual information of a person's hair color and their face shape and all the general things that uh, cause a person to overtly recognize somebody. There's more contextual stuff going on. Like, I recognize this is a famous person. I just don't know who they are. You know, I I know I recognize that they're like a politician or an actor or I know that I should know them but I don't quite know what name to put to them, right? And I should say that President Buknoja can be extreme. My mom, she described the experience of standing next to like a storefront window shopping and seeing her reflection in the window and having a moment of not knowing who was there. She didn't recognize it. Ooh, that's spooky. Ooh. (laughs) And there are tons of cases like that. There are cases of people being shown photographs of themselves and not being able to recognize it, but they might know how they feel about that person it doesn't mean recognition it means like you run into a person and suddenly you're mad and you don't know why i actually had this experience (laughs) with a pair of police officers who were pulling this guy over i was having this deep rage at these individuals who like as far as i knew were just strangers (laughs) and i was like oh those are those assholes yeah right (laughs) so it wasn't just like you know i just feel like hating today i just want to go and punch that guy this actually ties into the blindsight case they test it similarly with these forced choice things and find above average performance like in those cases even if a patient gives high accuracy results even if we know rationally we give low confidence ratings for our Mm -hmm. answers because it doesn't feel like you're doing anything when it happens you just find out it worked or it didn't after the fact if i didn't know about covert facial recognition i would not know how to explain that experience other than by like saying that I was psychic. It's something that you feel powerless over, I imagine. There are a couple explanations for how this works. Probably a couple of mechanisms genuinely at play at different cases for how you get this covert overt divide, how you can have successful recognition despite never consciously recognizing the other person. Mm-hmm. So there's this thing called the theory of contradiction. Presopagnosia comes from damage to the ventral route of the visual system. So covert recognition indicates that some intact ventral limbic structure still is projecting into the amygdala where a lot of emotional stuff is happening. In the effective valence in developmental presopagnosia theory, in covert recognition, individuals are processing faces in terms of emotions and what we'd call like effective dimensions instead of familiarity dimensions and memories of past interactions. You can think of it as you have conditioned responses to certain individuals. Which is really interesting and also ties back to another interesting thing we should cover in this section, which is the bizarro opposite day version of prosopagnosia, which is Capgras delusion. Yeah. Where the overt is covert and the covert is overt. <laughs> so Capgras delusion is where the opposite is true. So in prosopagnosia, you can covertly recognize somebody, but overtly you don't. You can recognize and get a feeling about them, but you don't know their face. With Capgras delusion, you can overtly recognize them, but the part of the brain that covertly recognizes a person as familiar doesn't work. So you will see a person and be like, I know your face. I know your name is Michael, but you're not Michael. And it's a feeling that something is incredibly wrong. And so this delusion, uh, called Capra's delusion, uh, because it was discovered by that French guy. Um, (laughs) so he got to name it, of course, uh, is this delusion where it seems as though everybody has been replaced by an identical lookalike. And it's because you're lacking this sort of covert half of recognition that when it comes together, you get overt and covert together and you get this delicious sort of peanut butter and jelly sandwich of recognizing a person's feature and also all of the other sort of covert emotional psychological stimuli, all the other like skin response stuff. With Capgras, you have the data, but you don't have the feelings. And I think this ties back in with our Doppelgangers episode. I'm not sure if we mentioned Capgras. Yeah, we talked then. about it there. Okay, yeah, because this is this is another kind of thing where it, it will feel like a doppelganger has come into your life when really it's just that you're lacking this other portion of recognition. You can illustrate a difference between these two different routes of recognition in healthy subjects. Rodriguez, Fester, and Leon have published a paper showing the results of an experiment to that effect. And that's another thing that we will link a citation to. Mm-hmm. Um, but so far, we've gone from blindsight, which is like dealing with these two very, like, very old 
more basic seeming kinds of systems. Not um, running into trash cans. Yeah. Is there a shape there? Is there motion? To something a little bit more complicated, being able to recognize a person on some level without ever consciously recognizing them. And now we're going to take a massive step yeah. to JJ's awesome topic here. Psychics. We're going headlong into psychic land. <laughs> Please bear with us. I promise this is going to tie into a thing. <laughs> so I'm going to take you to my magical section. Come with me behind the veil to the world of crystallinks.com where we're going to discuss the mystical art of automatic writing. <laughs> As Crystal links the webpage full of turn-of-the-century blingy-type gifs and endless load times, and I don't know that I can find an author for it because I think everybody wrote it. It defines automatic writing as the process or product of writing material that does not come from the conscious thoughts of the writer. The writer's hand forms the message, and the person is unaware of what will be written. It is sometimes done in a trance state. Other times, the writer is aware, not in a trance, of their surroundings, but the actions of their writing hand. Crystal Links goes on to tell the story of automatic writing. It came about and had a significant rise during the sort of spiritualist movement of the late Victorian era, and it had one particularly famous practitioner by the name of Helena Smith. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Helena Smith, but before we go any further, I need to give you some important psychic warnings from crystallinks.com. First of all, you need to know that the answers can be surprising, but always be cautious with any tool of divination chosen, such as the Ouija board. TM. If you have emotional problems, you may not like the messages that come through. Your consciousness being in lower frequency due to emotional problems will attract a lower frequency entity. That's why you'll get angsty automatic writing if you're angsty. That's yeah, definitely you're it. If you like drama and consider your life to be in drama, don't channel. Period. <laughs> Get out! Some automatic writers know who is giving the messages, while others do not. If the energies feel comfortable to you, then you will soon learn who the entity is and why he, she is writing with you. If you feel the least bit uncomfortable with the entity or the information received, stop! That's what Crystal Link says. And go with the flow. Always remember, go with the flow. Trust your feelings. All right, so who was... Who was Helena Smith, and why do we care? Helena Smith was originally born Catherine Elise Mueller in 1861. She discovered spiritualism in 1891 and developed a sort of spiritualist circle. Eventually, she claimed to show psychic abilities where she was able to communicate with the ghost of Victor Hugo. She eventually became well-known in Geneva, where she ran into the man that would eventually kind of debunk her and her Martian alphabet from Mars, a professor of psychology by the name of Theodore Flournoy. So he worked at the University of Geneva. As Helena Smith's, nay, Elise Mueller's, skills grew, uh, she branched out from talking about Victor Hugo into claiming that she channeled her past lives, as well as went all the way to Mars in a somnambulatory trance of which she remembered not a trace. And she saw scenes from the history of Mars and everyday life on Mars and even began to write down messages from the Martian alphabet. You can look up examples of her automatic writing of the Martian alphabet. It looks very curly cue-ish and squiggly. Um, but this was very impressive and exciting because this was a new product in the spiritualism scene. Previously, it had been lots of, like, tapping and, like, spirit photography or mesmerism and uh, all sorts of other sort of supernatural things. Or a person would just channel and do a voice where they were channeling a spirit. And to spooge ectoplasm all over you. <laughs> Cheesecloth out of their neck. Helena Smith was new and interesting because of her automatic writing, which became very popular after that time. Instead of knocking or channeling vocally, she would channel through a pen and paper and say that she had no conscious control over her movements and no knowledge of what they meant until they were translated later from Martian. In 1900, she published the book From India to the Planet Mars! <laughs> and it was actually published by Flournoy. He studied her 
for quite a while, actually through a number of cycles that she sort of went through. The Martian cycle, the ultra-Martian cycle, which I really wonder what that means. <laughs> there was also a Hindu, an Oriental, and a royal cycle. Oh, God. Yeah, welcome to the Victorian age. Woo. Uh, anyways, the interesting thing, though, is that Flournoy, even though he published this book, judged the Martian language in particular to simply be quote, the product of an infantile imagining, and that the language was just a constructed language. It was just made up. He said that the language had a strong resemblance to French, and that her automatic writing was, quote, romances of the subliminal imagination derived largely from forgotten sources, for example, books read as a child. So it was actually Flournoy at around this time, at the turn of the century, around 1900, who actually coined the term cryptonesia, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, where it's basically the phenomenon where you read something or you hear something and you forget it consciously, but your mind stores it somewhere. And sometime later it will come up and you'll be like, wow, I wrote this really cool song. It's just sort of a rehashing of something that you had heard previously, but you forgot that you heard. Like the famous Helen Keller case. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. This ties back to the macaque. I'll never forget that book, Helen and the Withholding Psychologist. So yeah, and this is something that's come up multiple times because, uh, for example, this is a problem in, like, study or academia because it's not uncommon for people that do tons and tons of reading to unintentionally plagiarize something. Like, sometimes perhaps a turn of phrase will just sort of stick in your mind and it'll be the way that you write and then it will ping as plagiarism where that was not your intention at all. This is an example of how cryptonesia can screw you over in the modern age without you having to make up a Martian language to get popular in Geneva at the turn of the century. (laughs) It's interesting, though, because... Automatic writing, obviously, continued to have a long life, despite the fact that Flournoy was kind of like, yeah, she's basically just doodling and sort of making up squiggles in French. Um, Because automatic writing is fun, for one. And two, automatic writing ends up actually having some very interesting properties. As I studied more about automatic writing and didn't spend all of my time on crystal links, I found a couple of really interesting studies, one particularly of Brazilian mediums. So this was a study led by Julio Perez of the University of Pennsylvania, who gathered together a group of 10 Brazilian psychographers, or people that do automatic writing. So there was one group of very experienced automatic writers and one group of, quote, less experienced automatic writers. And they basically divided these people into two groups based on how frequently they wrote and how many automatic writing sessions they had done. With the experts, it was like in the thousands, how many times they had done automatic writing. And with the non-experts, it was less than that. So, man, wait, that means I'm going to have to do a lot of automatic writing if I'm going to become an expert. I kind of figured this was a thing I could just pick up. Well, you know, it's automatic. If you're, <laughs> if you're very talented, I'm sure you can become an expert in no time. If you're open and have high frequency vibrations, then the highest frequency entities will be attracted to you. They didn't just, like, call in a bunch of Brazilian mediums and say, hey, do your thing for free. Here's some coffee. They actually hooked them up and did brain scans while they were doing their automatic writing sessions. And they found something very, very interesting in the scans between the two groups. Here's a quote from an article that we will link. When less experienced mediums went into psychographic trances and produced written messages, the parts of their brains associated with complex idea production, planning, and language became much more active, as one might expect. Their writing also became slightly more complex, meaning that the parts of their brain responsible generally in writing and composition lit up. However, when the more experienced mediums went into a trance, the very same parts of their brains seemed to suddenly go much quieter, just as their writing became much more sophisticated, meaning that the parts of their brain that are usually responsible for composing showed less activity, and yet they were still able to produce a comparably complex piece of automatic writing. The researchers chalked it up to experience, the expert mediums had spent so much time doing automatic writing, it was kind of like doing it in their sleep. They didn't have to engage higher functions. And this is something that they said was based on pre-existing pathways that they were able to access. I am paraphrasing and trying to metaphor this here. But it was very interesting how the brain scans, in a way, seemed to back up their claims that the conscious part of their mind really does go offline and 
some other portion of their brain takes over the production of writing these messages. Whereas in the less experienced ones, it doesn't map so well to the supposed explanation of how automatic writing happens, which I found super fascinating. I found another study by Suzuki, Miyamoto, Miyamoto, and Hirata uh, titled Transient Automatic Writing Behavior Following a Left Inferior Capsular Genu Infarction. They found a 79-year-old... Those aren't woman. words. <laughs> they are words. Infarction is totally a word. I understand transient. <laughs> I understand that somewhere out there, Eileen Wernos is automatic writing for someone. <laughs> On a bathroom wall. Yeah. This transient keeps coming through me. She wants to yell at grocery store owners about lottery tickets. <laughs> and she keeps just drawing me to the kitchen implements aisle. I don't know why. <laughs> Anyways, okay, so they do mean something. Left inferior capsular genome infarction is a specific part of the brain that basically went blap. So they found a 79-year-old right-handed woman who was admitted to the hospital. It seems that one day this woman suddenly lost her ability for spontaneous speech and instead had to respond with nodding. She remained in bed alert but seemed indifferent to her surroundings. She showed no other signs of any sort of compromises in her motor skills or her sensory function. She didn't go blind. She didn't become paralyzed at any point. She just lost the ability to speak and started exhibiting these interesting behaviors. An MRI on her showed this problem in this certain part of her brain. The geno is basically fibers that connect the motor section of the cerebral cortex, and it's responsible for sending signals to the cranial nerves of the opposite side of your head. However, the tomography revealed a, quote, left-dominant diffuse hypoperfusion of the basal ganglia and frontal lobe. When this thing went wrong in the left portion of her brain, she showed increased writing activity without motor or sensory deficit. This was characterized as distinct from hypergraphia, which is another phenomenon where you write lots and lots, um, and that the writing was more characteristic or similar to automatic writing. One of the ways that they determined the difference between the sort of thing that she was doing was characterized as automatic writing instead of hypergraphia is that when they tried to get her to write normally, like they tried to get her to write her messages out because she was nonverbal at that point, she could only spell just one or two words. She seemed to have generally lost the ability to write anything. Uh, when they asked her to write her name, she, as they say, quote, exhibited neologism in kanji and wrote Ishimura Shinbun, combining Ishimura, her last name, with Shinbun, the newspaper that they had put before her. When they would place a written note in front of her with the word for neurology, she was able to write the same word instead of her name. So they kept putting these cards in front of her, but instead of writing her name, she would write the thing that she saw in front of her. And so this is different from hypergraphia, where a person just sort of compulsively writes a whole lot, because she didn't seem to have conscious control over what her hands were doing. It was a response to external stimuli it was also interesting, too, that many of these words that were written under automatic writing conditions, so to speak, didn't show any of the sort of errors or neologisms that happened when they asked her to write her name, right? Like, she would write clearly, she would uh, not have any sort of weird scrawling spatial distortions where the, the, the marks would just sort of sprawl off into nothing. And so the sort of problems that occurred when she tried to overtly or consciously write something disappeared when she was subject to this phenomenon. She never fully regained her abilities. At the end, two years later, her response to questions had become slightly shorter, in fact. Uh, she replied with a small voice and a smile and continued to exhibit, quote, decreased spontaneity. This is not just seeing shapes and movement, not just recognizing somebody who's familiar, but your brain is able to see representative marks and reproduce them. Whether or not there's like a level where it jumps up to recognition of representational language and then back down is unsure, but some portion of the brain is capable of, I mean, kanji is not easy to do. Fine motor skills are not easy to do. This is why I wanted to talk about automatic writing and psychics, because we have a case for automatic writing, and no, it's not spirits this time, it's people putting up note cards in front of you, but if you're a person that believes in supernatural stuff, you could feasibly then reason that it's possible for automatic writing to 
in some cases, be people interpreting external stimuli that we cannot otherwise process, and then it comes out as automatic writing. I don't know that I believe it or not, but this is one of the moments where I touch up against the woo-woo, interesting, floofy-doo part of the paranormal, and I'm like, what if somebody who practices automatic writing is in a sort of weird way tapping into this covert ability they can't consciously organize it. They can't consciously be aware of it and manipulate it. What if they're doing what you did, Jack, and processing external stimuli correctly? And generating shit out of it. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, I think that that's a really, really cool idea. And you can imagine that process interacting with processes of like confabulation as you try mm -hmm. to make sense of what's happening, as you try to make something coherent out of the output you might end up with a weird narrative mm -hmm. around it. Yeah, I really like the idea of subjecting oneself to this specific kind of attentional blindness or something. Right, and it also it also makes me wonder whether there are some instances of supposed psychic ability that might actually have a real explanation in the physical world, right? I think that it's possible that if a person wasn't wasn't expecting to be able to pick up on signals in this covert fashion, they wouldn't have that crisis of confidence. And then if they were able to identify these patterns and then rely on them, that would begin to start looking an awful lot like a reliable psychic practice. Like a person yeah. can recognize something and they don't know why it's important, but they know that it is. And then it turns out that that was justified true belief or however you want to characterize it. Dose into the whole like, internalist and externalist justification. Right. And yeah. so kind of like, kind of like pinky sense, it's something that they can come to rely on because they learn to pick up on the, the feelings of recognizing something that's important and they know that it's true but they don't know why, and so they operate... I mean, this is what psychics talk about. It makes me think of profilers. Yeah. Like, the profilers were really, really good at it, but then, like, if you try to generalize their techniques, it's just bullshit, because yeah. maybe they're not... Maybe, yeah. Maybe it's maybe not it's, that easily codified. Maybe it's... Maybe they are confabulating reasons for their answer, which is justified on other grounds that they can't... Yeah, they can't verbalize. ...make explicit... Maybe even in principle. I, I don't know. Yeah. And so this is honestly one of the most exciting and interesting things that I think I've ever really explored in terms of like psychic ability, because most of the time it's just like cold reading a room and stuff like that. I kind of can't help but be open to the possibility that there can be data that we take in and then can produce something in us that is equivalent to a psychic experience, but is absolutely based in the yeah. real world, right? Like, it's not a magical spirit. It's not, like, something supernatural necessarily, except in the sense that we don't know how to explicitly state it. So I don't ever become confident in my ability to recognize a person because it seems like a very limited domain, right? Mm -hmm. Where, like, I have to be on my guard and I can't predict when I'm going to be successful or things like that. The blindsight person can't predict when they're going to be successful at giving the features of an object. They're not going to feel ever compelled to spontaneously guess. But if you are thinking more broadly in terms of the psychic thing, you're dealing with so much more information. So if I were to think of this in terms of follow my intuition, maybe I could benefit from my covert Yeah. Stuff. And honestly, the study of the Brazilian mediums actually seems to suggest that you can train yourself to get better at this. Because if their brain scans show that they get better at producing equal quality and equal complexity work with less overt mental effort, and that the only thing that sort of delineates them is that they've done it tons and tons and tons of times, it maybe suggests that if you begin working at this, maybe you really can learn to be a psychic. I don't know, Jack, have I lost it? I think I've lost it. I think I'm losing it. I think it's okay. I think what we need to do is we need to yeah. we need to go into the maybe, philosophy. Maybe if we need to maybe we need to just chill out and take a soothing music break. On All Things Considered, they had an interview with Daniel Levitin talking about this interesting study that he did with the musician Sting. I say musician Sting because we might have wrestling fans that think that he interviewed a wrestler about music, but he did not. 
he interviewed Sting, who you might know best from his role as a Harkonnen in a very steamy version of Dune, directed by mm. David Lynch. He is a very nice-looking Harkonnen. Anyways, uh, they somehow managed to get Sting into the lab to start doing brain scans on him because they wanted to study the way that his brain processed music because they figured that if they could learn more about the way that an expert processes musical data, then if they could figure out, uh, for example, organizational structures. They might be able to teach people that aren't experts about music how to become experts, right? By like sort of imposing this framework that could then be filled in. Yeah, so they put Sting in a brain scanner and they did a couple of different things. One is that they asked him to imagine a piece of music and then played a piece of music for him and compared the two brain scans and what was going on. And they found, interestingly, that when Sting imagines a piece of music, it is very, very similar to actually hearing it. The more interesting thing, though, is that when they started playing him seemingly disparate songs, songs that sounded very different, at least to Levitin and the other researchers, for example, the difference between the Beatles song Girl and a tango tune, they found that certain portions of Sting's brain would light up in similar ways. And so certain songs would have very, very similar brain scans as if picking up on similarities in them. This was found between a couple of different songs, including one of Sting's own songs, Moon Over Bourbon Street, they found was very, very close to Green Onions by Booker T and the MGs. Again, not the wrestler. <laughs> yeah, not the wrestler. <laughs> And it was only later when Levitin went back and mathematically compared the songs, like the sheet music of the songs. He talks about going to the sheet music um, where he found that there were like three note sequences or that two of the songs would be at the same tempo, beats per minute, and in the same key of F minor. Uh, that's Green Onions and Moon Over Bourbon Street. That there were similarities between the songs that he couldn't see, but that Sting's brain picked up on. And... When I was listening to this, I kind of heard the example songs and I was actually expecting for them to talk about how incredibly different every single song was in Sting's brain and that Sting's brain would be picking up on different details of the musical composition that I, as a sort of self-taught novice guitar player, would not really necessarily recognize, but he would because he's a master, he's an expert, that's why they're studying his brain, not mine. Um, however... Instead, it was that there are these patterns. And one thing that is really interesting to me that I think I heard in a version of the story that did not make it into the edit that is now published online, sadly, is a moment where Daniel Levitin talks about how he did not know this was happening and he, quote, wasn't even sure that Sting knew it was happening either. Most of this data was gathered simply through brain scans. They didn't have Sting fill out, like, questionnaires or, like, test him verbally on any of these sorts of things. But it's interesting, nonetheless, that whether or not Sting has conscious access to these connections that his brain is making, a person looking at his brain scan can see these connections. We want to take this and relate it to philosophy. We've talked about qualia before. Let's redefine qualia. It's like an adorable Pokemon. Well, we might want to make a difference between like objective facts about the world, things we can measure, and things that seem to be um, purely subjective. An experience is a thing that a person or an experiencer has. It seems like there are no floating around pains. There are pains for people. Those may be a different kind of thing, maybe, mm -hmm. than things that are entirely Objective, like glass yeah. or something. Yeah, frequently this is referred to as a what it's likeness. Like, yes. what is it like to be in the lime green truth room? The yeah. exact shade of lime green is something that is probably going to be actually different between Jack and I. There's something inherently, or at least Supposedly. the idea goes, yeah. um, special private about your subjective experiences. Yeah, there's a wavelength of like the light reflected by the paint, but that's not the same as what it's like to be experiencing staring at this paint. And something that people in philosophy might have said is that we have privileged access to our subjective experiences. There is some sort of information that only I have by virtue of introspection. And it doesn't matter if there's a neuroscientist staring at my brain, he can't see my experience of the green. But there's kind of like, in this case, we've noticed, uh, yes, like a kind of a flipped 
upside down version of this. Like in the presupposition, the covert recognition case, I might know, technically speaking, that like I seem to have a good guess, but I can't see that. But we also know that a scientist who has hooked me up might see that I recognize a person. So there's a scenario here where the person who is processing the information, instead of having privileged access to the experience of recognizing someone, the person who has access to that is some external... It's a scientist. It's a scientist. Reading signals. And so it's not necessarily uh, privileged access in the same direct manner, but it's more than the person has. I can see that I recognized, but... I have to do this in this indirect manner. And we just thought this was really weird because... It seems backwards. It seems backwards to how you would set up any system of explanation of how perception of the world works. And like (laughs) what it means maybe to have knowledge and how we think about that. There's something really interesting about the possibility that you could have knowledge without the belief. There's a challenge to our folk wisdom about whether or not we have to consciously have a perception to have our behavior influenced by that perception. Mm -hmm. And there's a challenge to what it means to have knowledge. It also creates a problem about where we delineate personal identity, right? Like, is you everything? Is you the conscious and the subconscious? Is you just the conscious part? And then the other part is a sort of separate but distinct body which can influence you but is not you? Is it something in between? We only call you once you act upon it or have access to it in whatever way that means, even if it's automatic writing. This can get really important when we talk about some of the things that people seem to do as part of automatic behavior. Mm -hmm. So these are cases we haven't really gone into because I really want to hit on them in a future episode partially. But (laughs) you don't just have automatic writing. You have automatic behavior in a whole bunch of cases, things that may be tied to this. Maybe they take a different process, but they kind of hit on the same theme of Mm -hmm. it seems like An automatic thing is happening. Something that looks like you and is using your body is going out and doing a thing, but you have no conscious awareness of it or or memory. So you may have heard horror stories about sexomnia or reckless driving when you're taking sleeping pills. I have a friend who just got on sleep medication. She learned that she had been driving around while she was asleep, like doing automatic behavior. And she was obeying the rules of the road, but she was parking illegally. And then she was hiding the tickets from herself. Ooh. And there are reports of people like gambling. There are really dark things with the sexomnia stuff. Yeah. And what's weird here is like, is that you? And are you responsible for it? Or are you just your conscious self? And so we can make this little dilemma here that yeah. JJ kind of summarized. So there are two horns. The first one is that you are all of these things. You're the conscious and the unconscious processes that come together It's a thing that behaves in certain ways. The problem there is that you become morally responsible for biases you didn't decide to take on, choices you had the experience of making, or choices you couldn't remember having made. Morality that's based on intent, for example, gets thrown out the window because then you are morally responsible for things you did not intend to do. Yeah. Um, And there are ways to deal with that with certain moral theories, but they have consequences a lot of people don't like and so yeah so that's one potential issue if you are all of those things you are now morally accountable for things that were programmed into you against your will basically um but then you might take say okay well no um maybe for moral responsibility the you is just the conscious stuff the thing that sees and seems to choose stuff the parent like observer that somehow arises from that stuff it's like whatever just just think about like narrative you you know you might be biased but that's not you you are the conscious the driver of the car there's a problem there though first off that you doesn't seem to have much causal agency and conscious (laughs) surely influences the conscious in many cases um and behavior and interaction with the environment are surely equally important to the self as the tiny arena of consciously decided and experienced behavior that may be one worry Uh, another issue here is that A lot of that you in that conscious narrative self has to do with like what we remember. Let's say you're about to undergo an intense surgery. There's no anesthetic available and the procedure is supposedly agonizing. It lasts for hours and you object to the surgery taking place, but the doctor tells you not to worry because though you'll experience the pain when it happens, you won't remember any of it. They're going to give you an experimental drug at the end of the surgery that clears your memories of the preceding hours. And the question is, Does this alleviate your fear about what you're about to go through? Do you think that you are not experiencing it because you don't remember it? Yeah, also (laughs) known as the men in black flashy thingy problem. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I think there's also a problem with horn number two where it's difficult to particularly delineate what is 
consciously you and what is unconsciously biased, as you said earlier. Like, because we're not conscious of our biases, we can't say, well, I am conscious that I don't have this bias that I am unconscious of. Yeah. It's kind of a blip. That's a problem. (laughs) And when we talk about, like, when I was saying, like, is the conscious you doesn't have much causal agency, Mm -hmm. here's a, a, a disturbing finding, is that people like confabulate the reasons for their preferences all the time they have a preference and they make a decision and if you ask them why they'll confabulate a reason and their explanations actually aren't at all predictive of like what they're going to prefer in the future so it may be the case that like what we're consciously experiencing in a lot of these cases have nothing to do with what the fuck is going on Mm -hmm. you know like maybe i'm attracted to this guy not because he's funny and smart but because like his history compatible with complex is compatible with mine and i've just like decided that it must be that he's really smart and funny because I needed a narrative that fit. Yeah, or like, he's my type, or ooh, he's not my type and therefore exotic. Or ooh, he reminds me of somebody, but I'm not sure who. And it sounds to me like TN, the old blindsided man who's like, nope, just smooshing along the wall this way. It seemed like a good thing to do. Totally valid. It's an explanation. I came up entirely on my own. So how does this get creepy? Aside from being really interesting and weird, what if... Every time you feel that chill run down the back of your spine of somebody's watching you, and this place feels bad, and I need to not be here, I need to run, I need to get out now. What if every time you feel that and you don't have a good explanation for why, it's that something is accessing this covert recognition part of your brain. Something is screaming at you to get out, and it's actually true. Like the douche chills. Sorry, more formally, the douche chill. This is something that, like, people who write about psychopaths Mm. um, have talked about. They don't call it douche chills. When you are talking to someone Mm -hmm. and the hair on the back of your neck stands up like you've come into contact with a predator because you've picked up on some cue. It reminds me of reading about Ted Bundy, right? And there was one of the sorority girls that was about to go to the bathroom, but she opened up her door and saw that the hall was dark and something deep inside her said, don't go out there, lock your door. And Mm -hmm. she did. And she was not beaten to death with a log that night. But she recalls this sort of story of like, she didn't know why she shouldn't go to the bathroom and she really, really had to pee. But she didn't because something told her. And it might be that like, she heard something or she smelled something or something subconsciously told her no and she listened to it and she was lucky i said earlier to jack when we were discussing the topic like i feel like we actually talk about this process all the time we say trust your gut reaction or that guy creeps me out you know like a woman's intuition and so i wonder like at least in my life whether or not i'm going to start paying more attention to this sort of stuff since i learned about covert recognition I have been a little bit more pursuant of my feelings around people. And I've found all these spooky occasions where I've come and found the person I was supposed to be talking to. It's just this endlessly disorienting, (laughs) weird magic. You know, Jack, what if you're just the Kwisatz Haderach? Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) The upshot of this episode is that we can all be psychic. You just have to believe in your heart and try and practice every day. So yeah, yeah. I think that's that's what we get to at the end of this is that trust yeah. your gut instinct because, you know, it might be your tummy telling you the truth. Though also it could be that you've learned some sort of false pattern and now you're like just a racist shithead. Yeah. Or you might have social anxiety and yeah. so don't reinforce and legitimize that just because you feel bad. I think that ties up our really interesting episode about something a little bit more brain-centric, a little bit more philosophical. If you like our stuff, do all the social media stuff. Yeah! Woo! Good night, listeners. Good night, listeners. This has been Paragoricon, a podcast of strangeness and truth. Hosted by Jack Parker and J.J. Roy. Produced by Will Marone. Opening theme by Chris Zabriskie, Prelude number 15. For more information and references, check out our blog at paragoricon.wordpress.com. There is no hope unmingled with fear, and no fear unmingled with hope. Baruch Spinoza.